0: Seated. And Let's join now with Christians around the world and taking our copy of God's word and turning together this morning to Revelation chapter 3 verses 14 through 22, Revelation 3, 14 through 22. This brings us to the last of the seven churches that opened the book of Revelation. and So the plan is next couple weeks we'll begin our study of the book of Acts. We're going to look this morning at. The last of the seven churches. And over the past weeks, I've, I've, as I've been reading and studying on this series of these churches, I haven't found any evidence that these seven churches are listed in any particular order. They're not in the order of best to worst, or, 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 or worst to best, least healthy to most healthy. To, there's no such order as that. The only kind of order there is that these seven churches are all within the same kind of general geographical region. So on the whole, it seems that Jesus is just addressing these particular churches in in no particular order, at least to to my finite human understanding. But it it does seem to me that he saved this church, the Laodicean church, saved them for last for a reason. They're they're the reason that they're the last word of, of, of warning and caution that we hear before we start reading John's description of heaven. And because, because it seems that they serve as a summary statement of what happens when a church purposely and deliberately ignores Jesus' commands and directives. As we look through these other six churches, two of them were doing well, but the others were not. They all had their own particular issues. And so we come to this church and it seems to serve as a summary statement, kind of taking all these church's issues and, and put them together and, and, and saying, what happens then when you find a church and a people who deliberately and willfully ignore what Jesus tells them to do as a church, what to be as a people? And what we will see is they don't become satanic they don't take the, the cross off the steeple and put a pentagram up there. They don't start involving themselves in cultic worship. But they do start putting their human opinions and earthly desires above God's word and commands. They're no longer primarily concerned about being a church for Christ that follows Christ. Rather, as we, we see these other churches and summed up in this Laodicean church That their focus and concern comes about their traditions. What what, what their their, their earthly traditions have become entrenched in their their church. That that's what they should follow. That they become a church that that runs things according to their own opinion. Whoever has the the loudest voice is the most powerful. They're concerned about how, how, how things should be done to make them look attractive to the world around them. They have more of an ear to the world than they do to God and to His Word. It's a church that has stopped being focused on Christ and His means of grace of Word, prayer, sacrament, and and fellowship. And so they become focused on self, they become focused on sin, they become focused on desire. So we take all these previous churches and all their spiritual struggles and we wrap them up in one church and what do we get? We get the Laodicean church. What happens when you find a church that has this name out front and opens its doors on Sunday mornings, but it has abandoned the means of grace, it's abandoned the ways that Jesus has given to his church to lead them, to guide them, to protect them. You get the Laodicean ARP church. As we see in our passage this morning. So let's take a moment to pray for our time in God's word and we'll look at this passage together. Lord, open our hearts and our minds, we pray. Because we need you to do this. So we may hear your word and believe it. That we may receive Christ and rest upon him as he's been offered to us here in this part of your holy word. We ask this now in the name of the one who is the incarnate God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse... 14, and we will stand together now for reading of God's word. And to the angel of church in Laodicea, write the words of the odd men, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, you're, you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. But not realizing that you are wretched, you are pitiful, poor, blind, you are naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and Repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. may be seated. So over the years I've been here with you as your pastor, I have shared, I believe, various parts, probably a whole of my testimony of faith, either from the pulpit, Bible studies, prayer meetings, and, and, and other avenues. And the summary of it is really this, it was around when I was six or seven, when my family started going to Shaw Heights Baptist Church in Sumter. Before that, we weren't a, a church-going family, but we started going. And when I was 10 years old, I was, I was baptized in that church. <laughs> the reason why I was baptized is not because I felt the call of the Lord. It's because all my other friends were being baptized. And I didn't want to be a black sheep at Shaw Heights. It's not a good look for a Baptist kid to not be baptized. So I walked out at 10 years old to, to be baptized. But it wasn't until I was 15. It was the fall of my uh, sophomore year in high school. And I came home one night after youth group. I couldn't tell you what the message was. I have no idea. I don't even know who was teaching that night. But it was that evening that I began to realize, truly, that my need for Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, opened my mind and my heart to the fact that not only was I a sinner, but that I needed a Savior. So laying in my bed, September of my sophomore year of high school, I prayed, and Jesus received me. But when I was 16, beginning when I was 16, for various reasons, I began to fall away from the faith. I fall away as far away as I I possibly could. Now, I will tell you, during that time, I would tell you I was a Christian. Doesn't matter how drunk or stoned or both I was, I would tell you I was a Christian. I would make the occasional appearance at church, because every Christian should go to church, at least Christmas and Easter, and I would go generally, I think, around Christmas. I would say the occasional prayer, especially when things were going wrong. That's when you pray, right? But there wasn't a single trace of Jesus in my life. There was a love of sin. There was a love of sinning, but not a love of Savior. Fast forward to summer. I turned 21. I'm home from Winthrop for the summer. It was this passage in Revelation 3, especially the part about being lukewarm. That just began to, to run in this continuous loop through my brain. And it's like one of those it reminds me of one of those you know electronic news uh, tickers that's on the side of buildings and cities uh, that you know just continuously running the headlines over and over again. And, and it, but there was only one headline that was running through my brain over and over again throughout that summer. that says, "I know your works. You're not hot or cold, and because you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth." And that's what just ran through my brain over and over again. It's as if the Spirit of God took the, 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 the few times in my younger years where I tried to read the Revelation. We, he took those few times when I read this passage and he, he, he tattooed it on my brain. And for that summer, I just couldn't escape it. It was always there, running through my brain all the time. And it took most of the summer for it to run through my brain because I'm not that smart. I'm pretty hard-headed. So it took pretty much all the summer for it to run through my brain for me to finally get the point, this is me. This isn't just the church in Laodicea. This is me. I am lukewarm in my faith. I am lukewarm in my life. I didn't want to go to hell. I used to have nightmares about going to hell. Nightmares of going to hell and to prison. I didn't want to go to hell. So I know as a good Baptist kid... If you don't want to go to hell, you need Jesus. But I didn't want to live all the way for Jesus. I liked my sins. I enjoyed my sins. I had a good time with my sins. From the time I was 16 to 21, I had a good time. I didn't want to be 100% for Jesus. But I knew I didn't want to be 100% against Him. Finally, it dawned on me, James, this is you you 're the lukewarm Christian I'm not, i 'm not was not going to take a true stand for Christ, but I wasn't going to take a true stand against Christ either. And so, through the ministry of the Spirit of God, it was this passage that helped me to understand that as a professing Christian, as someone who has professed to, re- to receive and rest upon Jesus alone for salvation, as he 's been offering a gospel as someone in a position that being lukewarm was an eternally dangerous place to be. Now I realized I needed to make a decision. Either I'm going to live for Jesus or I'm going to walk away from him. And it's just it was just that simple. Either I'm going to be all the way for Jesus or I'm going to walk away and quit playing This charade of a game. So this passage hits close to home for me. Because I'm standing here today. Because the Lord used this to convict me that I was being lukewarm. To convict me from being lukewarm to being a Christian who sought to live for Christ in all my life. Now understand, I'm not a perfect Christian uh, by any means. But I strive to be a Christian who will never be lukewarm again. I strive to be a Christian who who at least desires to love and and, and follow God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love my neighbor as I ought. Now, I say all this to also for you to understand this about me. I know I can really hammer on the need for living for Jesus. I know I can really hammer on that need for being 100% for him in, in, in all your life to take on Paul's emphasis that for me to live as Christ. I believe there's a big difference between having Jesus in your life and having your life for Jesus. They may seem like semantics, but there's a lot of things we have in our life that we can pigeonhole, we can put in a corner, and we just go to when we feel good about it. But when our life is for something, it consumes us. It's all about that. There's a big difference between us having Jesus in our life on Sunday mornings when we dare get up and actually come to church. There's a bigger difference when our life is all for Jesus. And I know I can hammer on that because I've been on the other side of that equation. And I know what it does to your faith. I know what it does to your life. And I know what it does to your testimony when we choose to be lukewarm and that understanding and that conviction comes back here to the final word the final word of caution to us from Laodicea because I think this is one of the greatest struggles for all Christians I think one of the greatest struggles for all of us is the struggle of being lukewarm we don't want to go to hell we like things about Jesus, but there are just some things we're going to keep from him. So we look at this church in Laodicea and their great sin that they were a lukewarm church and the people. They claimed the faith, but they were not fully committed to it in mind and in heart. Like I've already said, I think if we were to take all the spiritual struggles of the churches we've talked to so far and put them in one church, you have the church in Laodicea. Because this is a great struggle, I believe, not only for many Christians, but for all Christians, even for us here this morning. So it would do well for us to actually listen this morning. To listen to this word of caution that Jesus doesn't have to give us. But who graciously gave it to his church some 2,000 years ago. To be preserved in his word for us to hear it together this morning. A little bit about Laodicea. Uh, it was near the New Testament city of Colossae. Uh, Colossae, however you want to say it. And that's where the letter of Colossians was written. Uh, Laodicean church, we believe, it was probably founded by a man named, named Ephraim who was a Christian preacher who spread the gospel to his fellow Colossian citizens and we believe he made his way on uh, to Laodicea. And Paul bears witness to, to Ephaphas coming to visit him while he was in prison in Rome. There, watching Ephaphas uh, pouring out his heart in prayer for the people in Laodicea. We would saying the city was a commercial center and it, had, it was thriving medical and textiles. And they also had a, an, an eye salve that people would come all around to get from archaeological work, we also find it was famous for his worship of Zeus, uh, who appears in some of the city's coins. So just like all the other churches, and like our church as well, this is a church in a, in a secular society. It wasn't in a religious-friendly society. But as we read this item, as we continue to look at it, one thing I hope stands out to you, or will now, is that there are no items of praise from Jesus to this church. I don't know if you noticed this, but, but in the letter that Jesus sends to them through, through, through the angel, that there's no slap on the back for a good job. There's no, you know, at a boy or at a girl uh, for, for anything with the Laodicean church. The other churches, no matter how bad they were, had some bit of good news. We, we think of Sardis and all their issues, and, and Jesus says, well, I'm going to praise you because as bad as you are, uh, there's still a few faithful in your church. But this church, the Laodicean church, doesn't even get that. There seems to be nothing of Christian spiritual value there. There's not even a remnant of faithful Christians there. So spiritually speaking, there's nothing good happening in the church of Laodicea. There's no good good news for Jesus to share with them. There's nothing for them to cut out and put on their church spiritual bulletin board to brag about. Jesus has nothing good to say to them. But notice that, that, that Jesus doesn't really point to the culture or context around them. There, there's no mention of trouble from the outside, trouble coming in with enemies or persecutors or heretics. We, we see that with the, other, with the other churches, right? There's the synagogues of Satan. There's the, there's the culture around them. And so Jesus would say to them, look, look church, you, you have a problem. You have several problems, in fact, in in part because of the problems of the world around you and how you've allowed these to come in and influence you as a people in the church. So yes, they have problems, they have things they're responsible for, but there is an outlying context for them as well. But we don't find that here. Jesus doesn't say, look, there's a synagogue of Satan over there. There's the, the bad Jews over there. There's the Antichrist people over there. Jesus never says that. Because the problem and troubles of Laodicean church comes from within. The trouble of Laodicea is the Laodiceans. Not the pagans. Not the Jews. Not the secular world around them. The trouble of Laodicean is the Laodiceans. Now many of us here this morning are good Scott irish Presbyterians. And if you're not, we're working hard to train you up to be good Scott irish Presbyterians. It's part of being like this. And some of us are harder than others, especially Yankees, but we're not going to say names. Hi. <laughs> but many of us know the name William Wallace, the great Scottish warrior who fought for Scotland's independence from England. Whole movie's made for him, right? Brave Well, King Edward Longshanks was the king of England during the time William Wallace was fighting. And There's a scene in the movie uh, that's based upon as much historical evidence they can find. Uh, king Edward Langsh- Longshanks is sitting around the table meeting with his advisors and military leaders to discuss the problem of, of Scotland and William Wallace. And at some point as me Longshade looks around and says, the problem with Scotland is that it's full of Scots. And so for those of us who have some Scottish blood through our, through our veins, we, we take a statement like that and we hold on to it with pride, right? The, the statement of, of, of the stubborn boldness of the Scots. Yet when we look at the church of Laodicea and we take it and apply it to them and say that the problem with Laodicea is that it's full of Laodiceans. There's no pride in that. There's just sadness. Sadness that a church could fall to such depths that they are a worse enemy to themselves than what is outside their church walls and the world around them. Their greatest problem is their selves. And that's a sad place to be. But the sadness... That should serve as a caution to you and to me and to this church. We don't ever want to receive a letter from Jesus that says, the problem of Bethel ARP is you. The problem of Bethel ARP is that it's full of Bethel ARPers. It's not what we want to hear. And so Jesus addresses their self-induced problem and how he introduces himself to the church. He said, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He's purposely contrasting himself with the Laodicean church. He's saying, these are the words of the one who is and has a faithful and true witness, unlike y'all. These are the words of the one who loves truth, who follows truth, who brings nothing but truth, uh, unlike y'all. These are the words of the one who has consistently been like this, has never wavered, even since before creation, unlike y'all. this it, 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 it's, it's opposites taking place here. And it's interesting, Jesus self-designates himself as the beginning of God's creation. Now we need to understand this doesn't mean that he is God's first creation, that there was at one time only the Father, and then the Father made the Son, and then they made the Holy Spirit. No, that's not the Trinity. Same as substance, equal in power and glory. It means he is the one who began God's creation. Paul tells us in Colossians, I'm talking about Jesus, for by Jesus all things are created. So that's what we, t- we take Colossians and we put it over Genesis 1 and 2. For by Jesus, all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things are created through him and for him. So this isn't, Jesus wasn't created. Jesus is, is the agent of creation. And so we take that and we look in Revelation, we get to the Greek, and, and the beginning with this compliment at the end is, is an expression of God's eternity And so here it signifies Christ's sovereign rule over the created order. Say all this so we can put together and see what Jesus is doing. He's saying this word comes from their rule of the great amen, that the the period on the end of everything, the one who loves truth, the one who follows truth, the one who brings nothing but truth, is the word of eternal authority. There's this eternal authority, the great Amen. man, the one who, for whom and through whom all things were created, even including the church. This one is coming to them with a big problem and that problem is them. And not that they've become satanic, not that they've you know, begun to, to, to sacrifice children on the altar to church. Their problem is they have moved away from the word and love of Christ. And because of that, they've become their own greatest enemy. So Jesus begins to address their problem by using what's now a familiar term to us. I, I know your works. And just like with the Sardis Church, this is not an encouraging statement. With Philadelphia, it was. Sardis it is not. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Here's what we need to understand about Laodicea. Uh, right near Laodicea was the Lycus River. And we can understand in that day and time how important uh, the river was uh, to their livelihood. But the thing about the Lycus River is its waters were muddy and undrinkable. Part of the source of the river was an aqueduct from Hot Springs some five miles upstream. So by the time the river got to Laodicea, the, the water was, was lukewarm. It, it was tepid. It, it was It was ultimately undrinkable. And overall wasn't useful for the, for the health of the people. It just wasn't good. And Jesus is using that familiar river and his and problem being lukewarm to say to the Laodicean church, "This is you. Go down to the river and, and try to dip your hand or dip your face into to drink from it because this is how you are spiritually to yourself and to the world around you. That river represents you spiritually and Jesus says he finds their lukewarmness repugnant understand he finds them repugnant because they had no good spiritual qualities at work in their lives or in the life of the church there's no warmth of the gospel in their minds there's no warmth of the gospel in their hearts there's no warmth of the gospel in their in their lives they're just there was just none of that warmth, none of that desire, none of that love. They had grown indifferent in, in to the gospel message. Now understand, uh, John wrote this letter around probably the 90s A.D. Jesus was uh, was ascendant in, in the 30s A.D. Uh, churches began to be planted after that. Let's say, let's average out and say this church was planted around 50 A.D. 40 years old. Let's say as a church that's 40 to 50 years old. Planted by a, a, a good friend of Paul's. A faithful Christian pastor. Who planted them in the means of grace. Who shared with them the love and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And that church, I'm sure, started off excited, man. And they were ready to go. But within 40 to 50 years, they got to the point where like, eh. Eh. The gospel... I've heard it. Jesus, I know him. Yeah. They didn't reject the gospel message outright. They didn't stop coming to church. They still went to church. The doors were still open. They still did all the right church things. They still did all the Christian things when it was necessary. They would just look warm. They have become, they cease to be amazed at who Jesus is and and, 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 and cease to be amazed at what he's done for their people. If we could have gone to church at that time and we could have sang Amazing Grace with them, spiritually speaking, it would have sounded like a funeral dirge. Because there is nothing amazing about Jesus to them anymore. There is no desire to love God with with all their heart, our mind, our soul our strength. there was no desire to love their neighbors themselves. Grace was no longer amazing to them, mercy was no longer encouraging to them, joy was no longer found in Christ. When Sunday morning when the alarm clock went out, they would hit the Snooze button. And they would start saying, Do we have to get go to Sunday school? Do we really have to go to church this week? Yeah, we could do other things, we can go other places. Do we really have to do this? Because the means of grace to them have become burdensome. No desire to be in God's word. No, no passion to pray. Not, there's no faithfulness in sacraments. They're doing their best to avoid fellowship with other Christians. They were lukewarm. They're useless. They're undesirable. Like we're out there on a hot day and you, you're you working hard and you're sweating up a storm and you come inside and you go to grab that glass of water and you're expecting it to be cold and refreshing and you find out it's lukewarm spit it out because you can go in the fridge and get cold water it's become useless it's become undesirable and Jesus says this is the church they had abandoned their zeal for him that existed in a system of nothing but the best for Jesus. Now they just went through the motions. They sang their hymns and they didn't care. They heard a the word read and they're starting to time the pastor. It's 11:52. I hope he shuts up soon. Cause we've got things to do. And I think I just made some of that wine. I'm proud of myself because I didn't mean to. But they are lukewarm Christians in the church, and I say all this because I want to ask you honestly: Are you a laodicean this morning? Would you pass their membership class? Would you fit in well with them? Because there's no longer a zeal for Jesus in your life. There's no longer a zeal for worship. There's no desire to actually live for Jesus. Just do enough where you hope you don't go to hell. But let's just not give all your life to Jesus. Maybe it's just emptiness. Maybe it's just going through the motions. There's no heart engagement. There's no mind engagement. This? This? Well, yeah, he can take it or leave it. Maybe I'll be there. Maybe I won't. Your life is marked more by sin than grace. It's marked more by obedience to Satan than to Jesus. Are we Laodiceans this morning. And Jesus makes it clear there's a there's a danger of choosing to stay in that condition. And he says it really kind of graphically. He will spit you out, just like on that hot summer day where you're sweating. He just wants a cold glass of water. He will spit you out. I mean, he'll turn away from you. What if we're a Laodicean church? We may still have a building, may still be able to afford a pastor, still may have ministries. There may be a sign out front. We may do everything a church is supposed to do. We may personally do everything that a Christian is supposed to do. But behind it all, there is no Jesus. And he says, I will be done with you. Look at his warning. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. But you don't realize you're wretched. You're pitiful. You're, you're poor. You're blind. You're naked. They lived in a rich place. It was full of textiles. It was, it was a place that did well. Brought in a lot of money. It was eye salve. And it, it's all these wonderful things. They look good. They dressed good. Right? They were fashionable. Their, their, their homes looked, everything was just right. But they had no Jesus. They have fallen into the trap of thinking that because they had so many good things, they were blessed by God, right? Because that's how, that's the only way God blesses his people. If you're faithful, then you're going to have a, a closet full of clothes, you're going to have two cars in a garage, you're going to have a, a, a nice you're going to have a nice house, right? The idea we have is that the wealthier we are, the better we are, we, we are with God. They had plenty of money to do all the activities they wanted to, right? Everything was good, man. Money in the bank. It was all gravy. I'll try saying that to, to, to Christians in Africa They live off of one meal a day. Or Christians in North Korea who, if dare you even mention the word Jesus, are thrown the concentration camps. Are they less faithful? What were the of spiritual state? They were wretched. They were pitiful. They were poor, they were blind, they were naked. And Jesus says they're doing they're anything but doing well spiritually. They had material wealth. They didn't have Jesus. They had nice things, they didn't have Jesus. They had material things, they didn't have Jesus. They redirected their focus away from him and eternal issues, and therefore they had grown lukewarm in their spirit and faith. Spiritually they were they were wretched, they were pitiful, they were poor, they were blind, they were naked. And Jesus says, I am just about done with you. Three strikes and you're out. And this is your second strike. And you get ready to know what it means to have nothing spiritually of what it means to truly be apart from me. And here Jesus could have been done, couldn't he? He could have just shut the book and said, I'm done with your people. The Apostle John has this this high Christology at work in his letters. Behind this is the prologue of the Gospel of John, where he introduces Jesus with his words. He is the one who is full of grace and truth. Because listen to what Jesus says in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Jesus points to, to human relationships, ultimately point to the, to the fatherly relationship, heaven, saying that he will reprove those whom he loves, calling them to repent before he intervenes in judgment. Because as we read in Hebrews 12, we know we are loved by God when he disciplines us. We've all been at the store. And we've all heard that kid who is whining and who is crying And if you could take a picture of him and and, and put it as a definition of a brat, you would. Why? Because the parents refuse to discipline him. And what do we think? If only that parent loved that child enough to shut him up, to tell him no. And that's what the Bible tells us. We know we're loved when God disciplines us. And it may be that some of us this morning are under the hand of God's discipline because we're becoming Laodiceans. Maybe things aren't falling apart in your life, but there is something different. There is something that's just not right. And it could be like we read from Psalm 32, it's the heavy hand of God on you not to press you down and, 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 and to oppress you but to get you to recognize your condition. It's not because he hates you. He loves you. He doesn't want to see any of us end up like the Laodiceans. He doesn't want any of us lukewarm. He doesn't want any of us to, to recognize our situations being lukewarm and going, but I want to stay here. He wants us to be spiritually growing. He wants us becoming more like Jesus. He wants us to grow in grace and knowledge. So he says then, he calls us to repentance. To to understand the sins that that keep us there. So we can turn from them and turn back to him for, 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 for full intention and striving for a new obedience. That's the answer to our lukewarmness. That's what Jesus says. That's always the answer. To turn back to him so you can be aware of your sinfulness, so you can understand the mercy of God in him, so you can grieve for and hate your sins, so you may fully intend and strive for a new obedience. And sometimes that's a hard thing to do. I I I will close with this. The summer the Lord used this passage to convict me. I realized I would have no more friends. Not to, uh, not sound dramatic or whatever, but by this point they were they were into, uh, they were shooting up heroin and, and, and crack and, and and cocaine and stuff like that. Uh, some had turned over to uh, becoming shamans and so on and so forth. I, I realized I was going to be by myself. I hate being by myself. I can take about three or four hours of solitude and I've got to talk. It was terrifying for me to think, I'm going to spend the next month, month and a half by myself. But the Lord helped me understand it was worth it. There was no sin worth me giving up my soul for. The temptation for you this morning may be, my sin isn't that bad. My condition isn't that lukewarm. It's the same thing Laodicea said. And they're no longer there. When we listen to his call and we understand that conviction that he says this, I stand at the door and I knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and I will eat with you and you with me. And you will be the one who conquers. And I will grant you to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and set down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to his churches, to his people, to you. Pray with me.